0: We want to uh, conclude the series that we've been teaching for the last number of weeks on overcoming offenses. And I want to start in James chapter 3 and kind of wrap some things up this morning. Uh, James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the first couple of verses. James, writing by the Holy Ghost, says to the church, he says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things... Verse 2, in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. The um, uh, Most translations will translate this word masters as teachers. And uh, different uh, translations, different ways that this is presented will say something like uh, uh, don't seek to be teachers uh, or "Don't, uh, don't aspire, don't try to be teachers of other people. It can't be talking about the ministry gift of the teacher. That's not something because that's not something that comes or happens because somebody seeks it. It's something that God calls you to. So the masters, or as it's translated in other uh, many translations, as teachers, it's got to be something more than that. It's got to be something different than, the, than the, the office of the teacher. Well, what's he saying? Well, one translation says it this way, and I really like how this one is, uh, is presented. It says, "Don't seek to be, uh, don't seek opportunities to tell other people what to do." Now folks, I don't have to say another word for the rest of the morning. <laughs> Just let God deal with you on that. And that's the context that he's speaking of here. And, and that's the best translation that I can, I can, um, that I can find. It's certainly true to the meaning because James is saying, don't try to be someone that tells other people what to do. Why? Because everybody misses it. Verse two, he says everybody misses it. I never have understood why people, uh, you would not believe the number of people that come to me or call me or, or whatever, get in touch with me and say, Pastor Mike, I, I need to know what I ought to do. So and so told me what, told me that I should do this. What do you think? Well, what does it matter what I think? I don't have to live your life. And if I'm your pastor and I don't know what you're supposed to do, how's somebody else that's just giving out advice going to know? It, it amazes me. It just absolutely amazes me how quickly people are or how quick people are to jump out there and tell other people, well, I think you ought to do this. Well, what if you're wrong? What if they listen to you and you're wrong? One of the greatest uh, difficulties... That I ever saw anybody have to try to overcome in their life was something just exactly like this. They were in uh, another church, which was probably 30 years ago, and, uh, and and they were in a real crisis situation in their life. And somebody, a good friend of theirs in their church at that time, had told them what they thought they ought to do about their situation. And they listened to them, and they did it, and it went horribly, horribly wrong. They were offended at God, they were offended at the church, they were offended at the pastor for not for God not speaking to him to straighten the thing out before it ever happened. It was a mess. I mean, it was an absolute mess. And when they finally came to our church, they had a chip on their shoulder that was as big as a ten-story building. Proverbs 18 says that a brother offended is harder to be one than a city with strong and big walls. And that's exactly what that situation was. They had been offended. And why had they been offended? Because somebody told them something, had no business telling them, just jumping out there and saying, here's what I think you ought to do. They may have even said it stronger and said something that uh, that to indicate that God was behind it. But let's look at these verses again now in the context that James is trying to speak. He says, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Do you know you have to answer for people that, for the times that you tell other people what you think they ought to do? James is a pastor and he's saying, I've got a responsibility here. If I tell somebody what to do or the position that I have as a pastor, sometimes God will give me direction for other people and things like that, but I've got to an answer for that. You don't want that. If God hadn't called you to do that, you don't want that. Trust me on that. That's why I'm very careful. People ask me, what I what should I do? Pastor Mike, what should I do? And I'll tell them, I don't know. I may have an idea. I may have an opinion. I may even know what I would do if I were in your situation. But your responsibility is not to get direction from me. Your responsibility is to get direction from God. The Bible says we're to be led by the Holy Ghost, not led by people in their advice and what they think. Why? Because anybody can miss it. Verse 2, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to bri- also to bridle the whole body. Literally what he's saying when it comes to offenses, he's saying you learn to control your tongue, you got it made. It's hard to offend somebody unless it's through the words that we speak. Now, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 15 because there's a there's I'm going to pull this out of context just a little bit, but I want you to see the uh, see the example of Jesus life. If the Bible says in many things we offend all, then shouldn't that mean or couldn't we interpret that to mean at least that we're going to offend people no matter what. So we might as well give up and not try not to. Yet the Bible tells us the way not to offend people. Now, let's look at the life of Jesus as an example. And like I said, I want to wrap up this uh, this series this morning. I want to show you something about Jesus Um Well, Jesus was the Prince of Peace, right? As such, we would assume that Jesus never offended anybody. (laughs) Au contraire. Notice in chapter 15 of Matthew, it says, beginning in verse 1, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Oh, dear Lord. We're talking big-time lawbreakers here. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Folks, let me tell you a little secret. Everybody that's looking for what's wrong in somebody else has always got stuff wrong in their own lives. Everybody that's criticizing and saying, Well, here's what's wrong with the church. Here's what's wrong with that group. Here's what's wrong with them. They're trying to deflect attention from the fact that they've got their own stuff. They're trying not to deal with their own stuff and trying to find fault with somebody else. Jesus said, why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Now, notice the difference. Notice the comparison. The uh, scribes said, why do the disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Jesus said, why do you transgress the, the commandment of God? We're not talking a level playing field here. He's saying what you're doing is a lot worse because it's the commandment of God. Four, verse 4, God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother, and he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited, be profited by me. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Now let me explain this. The Jews had created a way, certainly it wasn't anything that God was behind or God had intended, but the Jews had created a way where you could buy yourself out of responsibility towards your parents. Instead of the responsibility that all of us have to honor our father and mother. Now the Bible says children obey your parents. But it says to all of us honor your father and mother. There comes a point where as we grow up and we're not children anymore. We don't have to obey our parents. Thank God for that. But we never are released from the responsibility to show them honor. Right, wrong, good, bad. We still have a responsibility before God to honor them. But the Jews said, well, that's a lifelong commitment. That's kind of tough. So what you can do instead is you can offer them money. You can bring them a gift and say, here, mom, here, dad, this is a gift I want you to be provided for. Now I have no more responsibility to honor you. Jesus is pointing that out as a transgression of the commandment of God. And he says again in the last part of verse 6, he says, Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Now, folks, let me tell you something. This is probably the most common thing, the common principle, for why Christians fail to realize what the Bible says belongs to them. They make the word of God of none effect by their tradition. The word tradition means precept or it means reasoning. You can think things out Contrary to what the Bible says and make the Word of God, which is the most powerful thing in the universe. It's the thing that God used to create the worlds. Everything that is seen was created by the Word of God. It is the single most powerful thing that, that, that can exist. Yet you can make it null and void of power through wrong thinking. And so many people do. Verse 7. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you saying this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips but their heart is far from me. For in vain they do worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For in vain they do worship me. That means what they're, what they're calling worship is worthless as far as God's concerned. For in vain they do worship me teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Do you know you could be religious in appearance? You could be worshipful in appearance. You could be—you could look like a guy that loves God more than anything else possible. And it be absolutely of none effect because of wrong thinking traditions, traditional thinking that changes the power of the word of God and nullifies the word of God in your life. It's not all just about how it looks, is it? Yet man looks on the outward appearance. We judge things by what things look like. It's a natural tendency. you got to develop yourself in the wisdom of God not to. But that's man's first inclination. We see people that are acting worshipful. We see people that are acting like they love God. That's why Jesus said your life should bear fruit. Jesus said you should be known by your fruit, not by your appearance, but by your fruit. Verse 10, and he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then came the disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this say? Now, folks, i got to tell you, this may be the one thing the Pharisees got right in Jesus' ministry. They understood that he was talking about them. They got this one. Now, notice what Jesus did. If the purpose and if our instruction by God, by the Holy Ghost in our Christian life is to avoid all offense at every cost, then Jesus is going to go try to fix this. Jesus is going to go to the Pharisees and say, wait a minute, maybe I was a little bit harsh. I shouldn't have called you hypocrites. I mean, you are being hypocrites, but that's that's probably not the best way to reach you. There's all kinds of things that he could have done and that that we, in our modern-day politically correct culture, might try to do. But notice what Jesus did when he found out the Pharisees were offended. I doubt that it was a surprise when the disciples told him. But nevertheless, the next verse says, in verse 13, he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. If the blind lead the blind, they both do fall into the ditch. Jesus wasn't concerned about these guys being offended. He goes on. Jesus said, or the disciples asked him to, um, to declare unto this, this parable. Tell us what this parable means, in other words. And Jesus said, are you also yet without understanding? Do not, do not ye yet understand that whatsoever enters into the mouth, goes out into the belly, and is cast out into the drought? But those things which proceed from the mouth... Out of the mouth, come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defiles not the man. Verse 19 goes back to verse 8, and that has to do with attitudes. It has to do with thinking. It has to do with right thinking versus wrong thinking. And Jesus is saying that the way that those thoughts are expressed is through words. That brings us back to James chapter 3 and verse 2. If any man's able to control his tongue, he's a perfect man. You want to keep from offending people? Control your tongue. But here Jesus has offended the Pharisees and doesn't seem to care. So, folks, I've got a commandment of the Lord from you. Offend everybody you want to and don't worry about it. We wish that's what it meant, didn't, don't we? But you need to realize something. When it came to Jesus' life and the example that he sets for us, he offends a lot of people. The church has this idea that Jesus kind of tiptoed through the tulips making sure not to not step on anybody's toes. Not so. Jesus stepped on everybody's toes. Mark chapter 3 and John chapter 7 tells us about how he offended his family. His family wound up saying, this guy's crazy. He's gone too far now. They were offended at it. And Jesus says, who is my mother? Who is my father? Who are my brethren? Those that keep the word of God that I preach. They were offended at him. Jesus didn't try to fix that. Jesus' disciples, John chapter 6, tells us that Jesus' disciples were offended when he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Boy, everybody got upset about that. John chapter 6, about verse 63, 64, somewhere around there, says that from that time forward, his disciples, many of his disciples turned back and walked no more with him. Did Jesus go back and try to get them? Nope. As everybody was leaving, he'd say, wait, 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 wait. We can clear this up. Folks, I want you to understand something. When it came to principle, when it came to the truth of God's word, Jesus was unmovable, and he didn't care what anybody thought about it. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is just living by the same example that he's preached to his disciples. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Jesus said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them... For both people, both types of people. And great was the fall of it, the one that built his house on the sand. And great was the fall of it. Verse 28, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. They were astonished at his doctrine, his teaching. They weren't astonished at him. Very seldom does the Bible tell us that people were amazed at Jesus. Jesus. After a miracle or some kind of big sign or something like that, sometimes that they would be astonished. But more than anything else, the Bible tells us that the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Why would they be astonished at his teaching? It would seem to me that if Jesus is teaching on the power of God and then demonstrates the power of God, they're going to be astonished at him. But it says just the other. It says that they were astonished at his doctrine, his teaching. Why? Verse 29. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This is a terrible, terrible translation. Notice the word one in there. If you've got a King James, the word one in there is in italics. That means the translators added it trying to help us understand what's being said. The problem is they don't understand what's being said. So they're trying to help us understand what they think. Verse 29 is a lot of translator tradition. Instead of what the scripture literally says. In the Greek, it literally reads this way. For he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. What does that mean? The word as means how or the manner to. The word having means to hold. He's teaching them. It says they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them how to hold authority. How do you hold authority? By being a doer of the word. By building your house on the rock. By building your house on the rock. Turn with me over to to Mark chapter 4. We looked at this a little bit, but I want to look at it just a little bit more in detail this morning. It's the parable of the sower sowing the word. Now here where it says the the man that builds his house on the rock in Matthew chapter 7, he has a successful life. He's able to handle the circumstances and the storms of life. Jesus is talking in Mark chapter 4 about the parable of the sower sowing the word into four different types of ground. Here he's talking about instead of successful life as far as the weathering the storms, he's talking about weathering circumstances in life to bring forth fruit. But it's the same example. He's using two different illustrations to get to the same point. And notice we'll start, to, uh, where do we want to start reading in this? I don't want to read the whole thing for the sake of time. Let's start in verse 13. His explanation, he says, know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? In other words, he's saying this is the key to everything. This isn't just the explanation for this one. This is the explanation for everyone. And the explanation for everyone is he that has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, the attention you give to the word makes the difference in each of these four areas or four types of ground. He's talking about not letting something take your attention away from the word. That's the key to everything. That's the key to Matthew chapter 7, building your house on the rock. Not to let the storms distract you, but keep yourself fixed and uh, focused on the truth of the word. It's what brings success. That's the key to everything, folks. That's why he said, if you understand the meaning of this parable, you can know them all. Because it all comes back to one thing and one thing only, and that is it's the word that we keep our eyes on. It's the word we keep our attention fixed on. It's the word that we keep as our focus in life. That's what puts us over. Nothing else can. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Now, the only way that Satan can come is through thoughts. So what he's saying is the same thing that we saw with the, the, the Pharisees, how they uh, made the word of God of none effect by their tradition. It's wrong thinking that makes the word of uh, word of God of none effect. It's the it's wrong thinking that nullifies the power of the word. So when you hear the word preached, when the devil's right there on your shoulder saying, oh, that can't work, that can't be true. If you accept what he's saying, then the word of God, which has the power to deliver you in each and every situation, won't work for you. That's the wayside type of people. Verse 16. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root, literally no moisture in themselves, no depth of earth. And so endure but for a time afterward when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. In other words, he's saying here's part of the storms of life, affliction and persecution. Affliction and persecution are designed for one and only one thing, and that is to get you distracted from the truth of the word, to get you to stop doing what the word says and do something else as a replacement. Because that'll bring failure. And that's what the devil's after. He's after you being a failure in life. Verse seven, uh, verse 18. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So what's he saying? He's saying here are more storms of life, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches and lusts of other things. But wait a minute. I thought some of those things are good. I mean, it's good that we've got a thing called a building to meet in. It's good that we've got a TV broadcast, a thing called a TV broadcast so we can reach more people. Those are things. Those those are things. Those are good. What's wrong about the cares of the world? And everybody's got cares of the world. Everybody's got to pay the bills and take care of the things that are going on. What's wrong with that stuff? The, The problem with it is if we get so focused on those things that it distracts us from being doers of the word. He's not saying there's wrong with any of those things. God knows that you have cares in your life. He knows that, that there are things that you're responsible for and things you have to take care of. Taking care of your family is a good thing. It's a care of this world. It's a good thing. You're supposed to do that. But you're not supposed to get your eyes so fixed on earning money for uh, to provide for your family that you forget to keep your attention focused on the Word. Why? Because the Word will help you earn money. God wants you to have all the things of the life that, that, to enjoy, the Bible says, but not at the expense of our attending to the Word. Finally, verse 20, these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty and some a hundred. Who brings forth the fruit? The people that bring forth the fruit are the ones that build their house on the rock, the people that stand through the storms of life. They're the ones that are able to not be distracted when affliction, persecution, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches and lust of other things come in against them. Those are the storms of life that he's talking about in Matthew chapter 7. Now, let me give you an example of this. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. This is at the Last Supper. And uh, Jesus offers them the bread and the cup. He says, this is my body and this is my blood. Um... Let's start reading in verse 21. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the son of man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. He's talking about Judas. And they began to inquire among themselves. Here's the twelve at the, at the last supper. They began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted as the greatest. Are you serious? Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed tonight. And they said, really? Who is it? By the way, who's going to be greatest among us? Man, these guys, they're really committed, huh? Jesus, no, what? Who's going? To, somebody's going to betray you from this table? By the way, I'm going to be greater than you. This is unthinkable for me. It, it's, there's gotta be more to it than the Bible's describing. I mean, we can see these guys' character flaws, but there's gotta be something here that we don't get. But at least we can assume and understand that the Bible has closely associated with these two things. Jesus saying, I'm gonna be betrayed, and they start arguing about who's gonna be greatest. Right? Jesus answers, Verse 25, and says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that does serve. Now, folks, you need to understand something. This is such an important principle in the world that we live in. He says there's two kinds of government. He said there's the world's kind of government that wants to exercise control over you. He said there's the kind of leadership that I provide that is to serve you. You wanna, you wanna know the one of the biggest jokes as far as titles are concerned in our modern day? Public servant. <laughs> they might as well be honest and say public controller. Cause that's what it is. And Jesus tells us there's only two kinds. There's the kind of the world, and by the way, the devil is in charge of that. Or there's the kind of leadership that brings greatness That doesn't look so hot from the outside. And that is serving other people. Verse 27, for whether or which is greater, he that sits at meat or he that serves is not he that sitteth at meat, the greater one. But I am among am among you as he that serves. Folks, Jesus didn't have to take that position. He did it by choice because it was better for them and it was according to God's plan. Not just according to God's plan for him, it's according to God's plan for everybody, for you too. You are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father has appointed unto me. Now, folks, if there was ever time for the disciples to get happy, this should be the moment. What? Wait a minute. You're giving us a kingdom just like God gave you? This should have been the eye-opening experience for them that wow! Jesus is giving us something just like God gave him. Think about the supernatural nature and the supernatural aspect of that. By the way, the same kingdom he gave them is the one he gave you. He's not saying I'm giving you special places as an apostle so you'll do stuff nobody else did. That's not what he's saying. They do have a place as far as being the first upon which the church was founded, the, the foundation of the apostles and prophets that the church was built on. But they didn't have a different kingdom as you. You've got just as supernatural a kingdom as they were given. That you may eat and drink, verse 30, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, I don't know too much about sifting wheat. I've never harvested wheat, but my mother used to have one of these old flour sifters. Any of you old enough to remember those? That had the the handle where you pull the the thing, and it did. I don't really know even know how to describe what it did for those of you that have never seen one. But it had it had two um, wire screens in there, and the wire screens rubbed together like this. Well, if you looked at the flour that was in there, it's stirring that thing up. It's it's shaking it. It's, uh, well, I I don't know, how how else do you describe it? It's, if you're, if you're the picture of the flower in this, this scenario, we're not talking about a real pleasant experience. (laughs) Because you're being grated, you're being rubbed, you're being shaken together, you're being, you know, stirred up. And this is what Jesus says is the example of Satan's demand. The word desired is demand. Now, some people read this and even some translations, point out or, or, or relay this as if satan is going to god saying can i have peter please folks how would the devil talk to god god's not going to hell god's not coming to where satan is is ruling here on this this earth satan certainly has no access to heaven so people see the story in job how that the sons of god presented themselves and and satan did this that and the other and they think that's how it worked today well let me ask you a question when did job happen Everybody's got all kinds of questions about Job. Answer me one question and I'll tell you everything you need to know about Job. When did it happen? Job's not in the line between Adam and Abraham. He's not mentioned in there, yet he was perfect man. What did God just forget about him? He's certainly not after Abraham because he's not operating according to the Abrahamic covenant, but he has to be after Adam because he's up making sacrifice. When did he happen? Show me when he was and I can identify what covenant he's under and I can explain everything that's happened in the book of Job. But you can't tell me when he happened. Nobody knows. Of course, you'll ask all the religious scholars and you'll get about 52 different answers. Because they know. What covenant was he under? Was there a covenant? He's making sacrifice. Why? Tell me about how this works as far as Job is concerned or when Job happened and I'll tell you everything about it. It's possible that Job could have been the first time when Satan found out how things worked. I doubt very seriously, this is just my opinion, but I doubt very seriously if when Adam fell, God had a conference with Satan and said, all right, now here's what's yours. Why would he? Then how would Satan find out what authority he had? Man was given more authority than Satan had when Satan was the ruler of the, the earth, this world, the earth. So how would he know? He's going to find out a lot of the ways that we find out, and that's by trial and error. This may be his trial and error. Job may be given to us as a record of Satan's discovery of what he had power or authority to do here on the earth. Now, some people say, oh, Pastor Mike, that's ridiculous. We'll disprove it. I dare you. I don't care how many degrees somebody's got behind their name. You can't disprove that. Now, is that the way it was? I don't know. But unless you can answer for me when Job happened, none of the rest of it really matters as far as looking at it as a pattern for today, because we know that it doesn't work that way now. So here where it says Satan desired, it literally means Satan demanded Simon Peter to sift him as wheat. How did he make that kind of demand on Peter? Because Peter was screwing up all over the place. Peter was making mistakes that would take him out of the blessing of God. And therefore, just like you and me, when we step outside of God's protection, when we step outside of the law of love, Satan has every right to attack us. He has every right to bring affliction, persecution, uh, the cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches and lust of other things to try to take us down. And that's what Jesus is saying. But there must be something unique about it because he says Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. But... Notice what the response is. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. So what's the answer when Satan wants to, makes a demand on you to sift you like wheat? Faith. In other words, keeping your attention and your focus on the word to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. It all comes back to the same thing. And that is keeping your attention on God's word. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. You know, the, the, <laughs> you know what this says to me? This says that Jesus has one great hope, and that is Peter is going to change. There's a conversion experience that's going to change Peter once and for all. And he said, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Now, folks, I, I have no, I give Peter a hard time. I, Peter, please forgive me. I give Peter a hard time because he is so out there in his mistakes. If you're quiet and make mistakes, nobody knows. Sometimes that's a better way. Not Peter. Man, he's out there. If a thought ever came to his head, he is jumping out there and saying it. And it's always your words that get you in trouble. I have no doubt that he means this sincerely. I'll go with you to, do, to the death. If they put us in prison, I'll be in the prison right next to you. If they put us on the cross, I'll be there right next to you. And he, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice, three times deny that thou knowest me. And he said unto them, when I sent you without purse and script and shoes, you anything, nah, I'm going too far. Let's uh, we'll skip down to verse 38. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. In other words, they're still thinking, okay, we're going to fight. If We're going to be betrayed. If somebody's going to betray Jesus, then they're going to come after us. Okay, Peter has already jumped out there. I'll stick with you. He's thinking about a fight. I'm willing to fight with you. I'll fight to the death. I'll die if necessary. And then they go to the, to the Mount of Olives and they start to pray. Let's skip down a little bit. And it says in verse 47, it says, And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, multitude, multitude. That's a lot of people. Behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of, the, son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them, John tells us it was Peter, And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Folks, I want you to understand. There's a big crowd. They're outnumbered. These guys have weapons. They're Roman soldiers. There is no way they can win this fight. Peter is not a coward. He pulls his sword and he swings at this guy's. I think he swung at his head and he just missed. He got his ear. Who aims for the ear? Peter can't do anything right. (laughs) He's not a coward. I want you to get this. He's not some coward. Now, we're going to see him deny the Lord in just a moment. But he's not some coward. He's not some guy that made this promise, and now he's not going to keep it no matter what. He really meant it. He's that committed to the Lord. He's willing to fight and throws the first punch, so to speak, swings the first sword. Verse 51, And Jesus answered and said, "Suffer ye thus far. In other words, put your swords up. This is not a physical fight. And touched his ear, touched the servant's ear and healed him. I love this. Jesus touched the ear, healed the guy's ear. I mean, he could have looked at him and said, Well, you're in the wrong crowd, serves you right. But he touched his ear and healed him. Then they took him, verse 54, they took him and led him and brought him to the, the high priest's house and Peter followed afar off. Now, um, I don't know, I, I don't really want to spend the time to, to read through a lot of this stuff. Well, yeah, I do. Uh, verse 55, And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, they were set down together. Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid, that means young girl, beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. Now, can I ask you a question? Why is that a crime? They're going to trump up charges against Jesus that he blasphemed and said that he destroyed the temple and all this other kind of stuff that none of it was wound up being true in the way they presented it, at least. So what's the crime if he was with it? They don't have any reason to bring him up on charges. If they get the leader, what do they need the followers for? What's he afraid of? Verse 57, and he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. Now, folks, if the problem is you were in one of Jesus' services, everybody was in one of Jesus' services somewhere along the way. And how would these people know that they were with him if they hadn't been around Jesus too? Jesus was that kind of famous. Everybody has been in and out of his ministry or his services or his preaching and teaching in some way or another as Jesus traveled around. Jesus has been in Jerusalem for almost three years, up to this point, almost three years off and on. And every time he goes to Jerusalem, he does great miracles. Everybody knows about it. Everybody's talking about it. What's the big deal? Why couldn't Peter said, yeah, I saw you there, too? And after a little while another saw him and and said uh, and, and said, thou art also of them. And Peter said man I am not. And about the space of one hour after another confidently affirmed saying of a truth. This fellow also was with him for he is a Galilean. And Peter said man I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake the cock crew. I think it's Luke that tells us uh, I'm sorry I think it's Mark that tells us. That, uh, that he swore and cursed Jesus and said, no, I don't know him and don't have anything to do with him. Then the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Verse 50 to verse 61 is one of the most heartbreaking scriptures that there is for me. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. I want you to understand something, folks. This is not something that they were in two different places. The reason Peter was there was because that's where they were holding Jesus before they brought him before the council. Jesus is, hear- is hearing everything that's going on. This is not something that was done somewhere else that Peter could even come back later and say, no, no, I didn't. I didn't say that. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Here's what I want you to get about Peter. When it comes to being a doer of the word, when it comes to building your house on the rock it wasn't the armies that came out after Jesus that scared him. It was the little girl and two other people. We sometimes think that if we can handle the big things, we can handle all of it. But very often it's the little things that offend us and trip us up. Now, if Jesus offended people, and it shows us the example of how things worked in Jesus' ministry, and Peter is a good example of how how uh, we should guard against offenses and and so forth, and the things that we need to stand against and 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 prevail uh, and uh, resist, as far as the the cares of this world and so forth are concerned. How did Jesus earn the title Prince of Peace? Turn with me to Matthew chapter seventeen. And this is the example that I want you to get when it came to principle, when it came to the truth of the word, Jesus stuck to the truth and it didn't matter to him who was offended and he didn't try to compromise. And folks, please, please, please understand this compromising the truth of the word, compromising the principles that we know to be true from the word never help. If you try to appease somebody, if somebody says that you're one of these faith nuts or whatever, uh, part of a cult or whatever, you try to appease that, you try to reason with them, it's not going to do anything but ruin your own testimony. I've seen so many pastors that try to keep people from leaving their church and they wind up losing more because then the people that were going to stay see that the guy doesn't have a backbone, so they leave too. Jesus' life is chronicled in the in the Gospels for a reason. It's so that we can see how to handle things in this life. Jesus never compromised when it came to the truth of the word. Neither should we. And that's what it means when Jesus said, don't think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Prince of Peace with a sword? What does he mean? He means the sword, the dividing line, is the Word of God. It cannot be anything else. Somebody said, as one of the founding fathers, I don't know who to credit this, but somebody said, I think it was Benjamin Franklin, he said, in principle, be unmovable and everything else be flexible. I think that's a good pattern to follow. The principle for me is the Word of God. I don't care who thinks the Word of God isn't true or some part of it isn't true. If the Bible says it is true. Period. And I'm not going to back up an inch. If everybody leaves, I'm still going to preach the truth. Now, I'm trusting God that if everybody leaves, God will replace them. (laughs) I mean, the truth should bring people that are interested in the truth, shouldn't it? I think that's why you're here. (laughs) We laugh about this, folks, but truly, I mean this honestly. I know you're not here because of my personality. (laughs) Who would be? But it's the truth. It's the Word of God that's true. It's the Word of God that we build our house on, build our lives on. It's the rock of God's Word. Paul even said this. Paul in Romans chapter 9, oh, it's the last five or six verses of the chapter. He talks about Isaiah's prophecy where he said, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Israel stumbled over Jesus. Why? Because they wanted to do it according to their traditions. But when it came to the truth of the word, and Jesus was the word made flesh, that was the uncompromising position. The word of God has to be true in your life, or else you're going to fall when the storms of life come. And that's why so many Christians fall. So many Christians make it just by the mercy of God, not because they put any of the word into practice in their life, just because God bailed them out at the end anyway. As a good, loving, heavenly father trying to take care of baby children. Spiritual babies. But the word will make you a champion in everything. It'll make you victorious no matter what the situation is. Okay, Matthew 17. Did you find it yet? Let's start reading in verse 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money. That means tax money. Every time you came to the temple, you had to pay a, a, a small tax. That's what it's talking about here. They that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Does not your master pay tribute? And he said, Yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him or held him back, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, Of strangers. Then Jesus said, Then are the children free. In other words, he's saying, We don't owe the tax. Thanks a lot, Peter. I wish you'd learn to keep your mouth shut. We don't owe this tax. That's what he's proving. He's proving we are not liable for these tax, this tax. We don't owe it. We're Jews. The temple was made for us. We don't owe the tax. But you said that we pay the tax. So what does Jesus do? Does he exercise his rights and say, well, I don't care what you said. We're not paying it because we don't owe it. Verse 27, notwithstanding lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea and cast a hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. If first comes up, that must mean there is others that are going to come up. Cast a hook and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for, the, for me and thee. Folks, i gotta show, I got to tell you something. The principle here is very simple. You serve God and he'll help pay your taxes. Believe it or not, it's up to you. But here's the point that I want you to see. The point that I want you to see is when it came to the principle of the word, when it came to the truth of the word, Jesus was absolutely unmovable. When it came to lifestyle, he was flexible. Chapter 18. Verse one, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Come on, guys. Seriously. Seriously. I guess it shows that their disciples were real people, doesn't it? Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now there's a lot of things we could talk about characteristics of children and what is Jesus talking about, but the fact that he identifies humility is the, the outstanding characteristic here of the child that he's talking about to come unto God. He says, you've got to humble yourself. In other words, you don't get it your way. You accept the things the way God has set them up. Folks, humility is the receiving attitude. To stand and say, Father, your word says that healing is mine, therefore I receive it, is not arrogance, it's humility. Humility. Arrogance is to say the very idea that those faith people think you can just demand healing. That's arrogance. That's pride. What the Bible calls humility is a willingness to take it the way God said it was. And the Bible says that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, and with his stripes you're healed. Now, no matter what you think about that, that's true. If you want it to be real in your life, then you have to humble yourself and say, you know, Father, I can't do this on my own, so I just accept your word. It's true. That's humility. Yet it's just the opposite of what the church calls it. The church says that's arrogance. The church says that's somebody demanding of God. Well, if God didn't mean it, why did he say it? We're just being humble enough to accept what God said as truth and receive it into our lives. That's what humility is, folks. Okay. Whosoever therefore, verse 4, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But, verse 6, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Offenses apparently matter to God. He's saying it's better to lose your life here than to offend someone who is humbling himself to receive from God. In other words, he's saying if you do or say something in your life is a matter of your lifestyle. He's not talking about principle of the word that that's fixed and set. That's what we build our house, build the house on the rock on. That's the example of building our life upon the rock of God's word. So he's not talking about that. So what is he talking about? He's talking about lifestyle. He's saying if you in any way live a lifestyle that causes an offense to someone that is believing me, if it hurts them spiritually in their innocence, it would be better for you that your life was cut off. Now, folks, that sounds like a pretty serious consequence to me. Verse 7, woe unto the world because of offenses. For if it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Offenses are going to come, but don't let them come through you. Again, he's talking lifestyle. He's not talking the principle of the word. When it came to the principle of the word, Jesus didn't care who he offended. He stuck with the word. And you should too. It doesn't matter if your family turns against you. It doesn't matter if your friends turned against you. It doesn't matter if everybody turns against you. If you know you're standing strong on the word, stay with it. God will give you another family, another friends, and so forth. But when it comes to lifestyle, it sounds to me like we ought to be examining ourselves to make sure we're not doing anything or living in such a way that causes a problem for others that might be weaker in the faith than us. What's he saying? He's saying your rights are not the key issue. Jesus has just shown us he had the right not to pay the tax, but his example was we'll pay it anyway so that we don't offend them. That's what this is all connected to, folks. Verse 8, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend you, cut them off and cast them from thee, for it is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do also behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. Now the rest of the 18th chapter is about the same thing. It's about forgiveness. It's about operating or living a lifestyle that does not cause offense. Everything about the 18th chapter is how to not offend. And the principle that he starts with is, it doesn't matter what your rights are. The question is, will it offend somebody else? But what's the argument in the church today? The argument is about what are our rights? What do people want to do? People want to try to find how close to the edge of sin I can get and still be okay. Is it okay if I smoke? Is it okay if I drink? Is it okay if I get tattoos? Is it okay if I live a lifestyle, a homosexual lifestyle? Won't God still love me? The question isn't, is this stuff okay? The Bible's pretty clear on some of those things. On other things, it's very clear that you have a right to. But the question is, what impact is it going to have on other people? Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, By verse 13, I think it is. He said, you've been called under liberty. Only use that liberty as an occasion to serve one another instead of serving the flesh. Now, folks, you can say, well, this is just Pastor Mike. He's just a stick in the mud. Well, when it comes to the word, I am stuck. There is no question about that. And when it comes to my lifestyle, and and remember, we're talking two different things. When it comes to the principle of the word, I will not move off of it no matter what. If I'm the last one standing on the word before Jesus comes, I'll be okay by myself. That's how committed I am to this thing. But when it comes to lifestyle, there's a lot of things that I know, just like Paul said, I'm convinced that there's, a, turn with me to Romans 14. Let's let him say, say it for himself rather than me just tell you what it says. And we'll close with this. And everybody breathes a sigh of relief. Let's start in verse 13. Paul is writing by the Holy Ghost. He said, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. Now, a lot of times people will jump on that and say, oh, yeah, you can't judge somebody else. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Let's read the context of what he's talking about. Let us not therefore judge one another. Most of the people I hear talking about not judging are the ones that are trying to get away or excuse their own sin. I've said this before. I'll say it again. Judge my life. You're supposed to. You're supposed to be examining my life for the kind of fruit that it's producing. If I'm not producing the fruit that the Bible says that I as a minister and as Christian, should produce, you don't need to be listening to anything I have to say. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. People that are talking about not being judged, told you the bumper sticker I saw not long ago, only God can judge me. I thought to myself, riding down the road, I thought to myself, there is a sinning fool. <laughs> and that's what that don't bumper sticker meant to me. I don't know what they intended, but that's what it said to me. It said, I can do whatever I want to do and nobody can judge me except God. That's not what the Bible is talking about. The Bible says that shouldn't be our attitude. It shouldn't be about rights. It shouldn't be about what can I do. The Bible says what we ought to judge is how is what I do going to affect the other guy? Is it going to offend one of these little ones that believe in me, that believe in Jesus? Is my lifestyle, is any behavior of mine going to create a problem for somebody else that may not know as much about God as I know, that may not know I have a right to do what I'm doing? That's the context that Paul is talking about. Let us therefore, let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore, but judge this ra- rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. If everybody lived according to that principle, we wouldn't have to judge whether somebody else is doing right or wrong. Because we would be making sure that we stayed so far away from things that could have caused an offense, it wouldn't be an issue. The church would live, be living a clean life. I just wish everybody wanted that. Notice verse 14. Paul said, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. Here's what Jesus showed Paul himself. That there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So what did Jesus tell Paul about lifestyle? It's not about what you have a right to do, it's about what the other guy will be offended by. But if your brother be grieved with with meat, verse 15, you remember the deal in Paul's day, was eating meat offered to idols? He said, but if your brother be grieved with your meat, with the meat that you eat, that, were offered, that was offered unto idols, in other words, now walkest thou not charitably. Charitably means in love. Then you're not walking in love. In other words, if you're doing something that causes an offense and a, and a spiritual hindrance to somebody else, you're not walking in love. Yeah, but I've got a right to do it. So did Paul. But Paul said that love is not determined by your rights, it's determined by the effect that it has on other people. The effect that your behavior and your lifestyle has on other people. Paul concludes this whole thing by saying, I'll never eat another piece of meat offered to the idols if it causes my brother to stumble, and I know it does, so I'm out. This would be stuff that he would enjoy eating, folks. But he says, I won't do it because it might cause a problem for somebody else. Verse 16, Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable unto God and approved of men. You want to be acceptable unto God? Then live a lifestyle that won't offend somebody else. That's what he's saying. He's saying you're going to be judged by your walking in love, not to the point where you just know, all right, I did this, somebody did me wrong, so I forgave them. That's not the only part of walking in love. Part of walking in love is to live in such a way that you know nothing you're doing is causing an offense to somebody else. Do you know the difference? Stop and consider this. Do you know the difference that it would make to the world if the church just started living a clean life, separate and apart from the world, so that the world could see a difference in us? No, they talk about us. The world would talk about us. But they're doing that now. So what do we got to lose? They'd say, oh, those stick in the muds, they never have any fun. Folks, you can't have more fun than the power of the God on you. You can't have more fun than the presence of God in your life. I feel sorry for people that have never experienced that because they have no idea what they're missing. But you can't get anything better than that. Smith Willsworth used to say, I'd rather have the power of the Holy Ghost on me for 30 seconds than own the world with a fence around it. I believe he's right. I'd rather have that than anything the world has to offer. But I'm going to jeopardize... My standing with God, I'm going to jeopardize my opportunity to have an influence on people by doing something that I might have a right to do, knowing that it offends them? Not me. Not me. You know what's funny? What's funny is some people are offended by what you do and other people are offended by what you won't do. I've got, I could give you a list that's too long for you to read of the people that are offended because of the way that I live my life because it's not loose enough for them. Because they want to live a loose life and they want me as as cover. I've had my son in the last several years, I've had my son come to me and say, Dad, there's nothing wrong with drinking. I can tell you a lot of people in our church that drink. Thank you for that, by the way. So he's not just looking at my life. He's looking at yours. Well, what do I say? How do you handle that? What do you say? Yes, and you have a right to Christians have a right to no question about it. It's not in your best interest, but Christians have a right to. I won't because it'll cause somebody else an offense. I'm never going to have somebody else's kid come to their parents saying Pastor Mike drinks. That's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen because I know that I'll have to answer for that when I get to heaven. Now, whether you have to answer for you or not, that's between you and God. You have a right to do what you want to do. Bible's real clear on that. But the Bible says if you do it and it causes somebody else an offense, that's not walking in love. Walking in love is the only New Testament law that we have. We're talking about overcoming offenses, folks. We're talking about overcoming offenses, things that we've been offended by. We're talking about overcoming offenses, things that will cause an offense in other people's lives. This microphone is stuck all the way outside of my head, isn't it? I can just tell this thing is moving all over the place. The tape has come undone, and now it's all over. Let's do this. These people watching TV say, well, at least they found out that it was sticking all over the place. (laughs) Folks, what's going to be worth more when the end of our life comes? Doing what we had a right to do or doing what was the love of God toward other people? If I could wish anything for you, it would be that you would grow to Paul's understanding that's identified so clearly here that your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. So it's not a matter of what do you have a right to do. It's a matter of what would be best for the other person for me to do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the price that Jesus paid for us. We thank You, Lord. Lord, the privilege that we have to walk in love, to walk according to the word. We thank you, Father, that you've made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. As new creatures, we are filled with the love of God. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And we have an opportunity to be a witness through our lives to other people. We thank you also, Father, that by your word, the truth of your word, we can build our house on the rock so that no matter what storms in life come, we shall never, ever fall.